invite you to take your copy of the scriptures with you and turn to this morning's scripture text, which is found in the Gospel of John, chapter 19, verses 28 through 30. We'll read additionally as well one other passage also from the Old Testament book of Zechariah, chapter 9. And so I do invite you to turn to those two passages in your copy of the scriptures and perhaps keep your fingers in those pages and at least follow at the beginning stage. And while you are turning there, let me just take a moment or two to express uh, my warm greetings to you and express also my deep love and affection for you in the Lord. Um, it's truly a joy to be here with you this Lord's Day evening and morning as well. And I have, over these past few months, have continued to pray for you and also for your pastor and for your elders. And also, I do want to express my gratitude and thanks to all of you who have poured your love and sympathy towards us, to my in-laws in particular, since March. And we have just been comforted from distance to know that uh, we can commend the care of our uh, family member to his spiritual family, even while we live far away. So I do want to express my gratitude to all the outpourings of love and sympathy from you. Um, John chapter 19, verses 28 through 30, but we will begin reading with a Zechariah passage, which is found in Zechariah chapter 9. Uh, We'll begin at verse 9. Before we read uh, the Word of God this morning, I do want to bring a reminder to you from Psalm 23 and say to you that the Lord is your pastor. Simply another way of saying Psalm 23, one shepherd, pastor, they're the same things. Uh, The Lord is your chief pastor. The Lord is your good pastor who laid down his life for you. The Lord is the great shepherd of the sheep who saves and gathers his flock and leads them and feeds them and brings them to glory. And he does that by his word and spirit through the preaching of God's word under the ministry of God's word. And because he does that, Psalmist says, I shall not lack. And when he does that, indeed you have no want. I do want to bring that reminder to you, uh, even as I continue to pray for you that both God's truth and brotherly love would abound in this place and you would be more and more established in the sound pattern of doctrine and good order. And God's graces and gifts given to you would be exercised in this place richly for the mutual upbuilding of the saints. Well, our passage from John uh, picks up exactly where we left off six months ago when I preached to you last time in December, following the words of Jesus spoken on the cross to his mother and to his disciple John, behold your son, behold your mother. We'll look at another saying of Jesus from the cross that follow immediately in that chapter. When Brother Jerry told me that we will be having the communion, my mind immediately went to this verse. So I want to bring that truth to you this morning and focus specifically on these words of suffering that Jesus speaks in his dying moment. I thirst. So we'll simply concentrate on those words of suffering that Jesus spoke uh, in his very moment of life before his death. Let's, however, begin our reading in Zechariah chapter 9. We'll just simply read verses 9 through 12. 
And before we hear God's word being read to us, let's uh, briefly uh, look to our God and seek his help and blessing. Let's pray together. A gracious Heavenly Father, we rejoice in this, the day you have created for our blessedness, for our rest in the Lord Jesus Christ, for our heavenly hope when we shall be with him. We pray that as the word of God is opened, you would fill our souls with that true heavenly manna, even the riches of Jesus Christ declared to us in the gospel. Even as you have promised to bless all the provisions of your house, we do pray that through your word, and later at the table, our souls would be strengthened and we would be further sanctified in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. So bless your flood, we pray. We do ask these things all in Jesus' name. Amen. Zechariah chapter 9, beginning at verse 9, we'll read down to verse 12. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And middle of verse 10. He shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you also, Because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Return to your stronghold, O prisoners of hope. Today, I declare that I will restore to you double. And if you please turn with me to John's Gospel, chapter 19. We'll read verses 28 through 30. After this, knowing that all was now finished, Jesus said to fulfill the scriptures, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there. So they, the Roman soldiers, put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Thus far ends this reading in God's holy word. As you remember, Jesus spoke seven words, seven times from the cross leading up to his death. Three of them were addressed directly to his heavenly father. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Father, into your hand I commit my spirit twice. Jesus was taken up with the needs of others, and he spoke to the thief on the cross. Today you will be with me in paradise. And then to his mother Mary and to disciple John, behold your son, behold your mother. And once, as Jesus does here in our passage, he made a simple declaration for all to hear. It is finished. But before Jesus did that, before Jesus gave up his spirit, 
Jesus consciously and purposefully let out a cry of thirst. He consciously, purposefully let out a cry of thirst. It's in fact the only occasion when our Lord Jesus drew attention to his own physical suffering in all the recorded words that we have in the scriptures. Jesus says, I thirst. In one sense, these are very unremarkable words. We all ourselves say that sometimes maybe after a long workout or bike ride on a hot summer day or a yard work or after eating a greasy meal or a creamy dish or something like that, we say, I am thirsty. Uh, Nothing out of the ordinary about the words itself. Until you consider who it is that is speaking uh, these words. The maker of heaven and earth as he's hanging on the cursed tree, has a burning throat. The creator of the ends of the earth has parched lips. The Lord of glory, crowned with thorns, being exposed to shame, is in need of a drink. These are words of suffering. I thirst. I thirst, said the Son of God, true God, and true man. I want to ponder these words more deeply and consider what Jesus' thirst revealed to us about the glory of God and the wonder of our salvation. And there are four truths, four things that I want to focus down upon this morning, followed by a couple of exhortations to you before we come to the table together. So four truths that Jesus' thirst reveals to us. And first thing for us to ponder is simply this, that this cry of Jesus is first of all an expression of Jesus' true humanity. Jesus' thirst reveals to us his true humanity. Jesus is thirsting because he's extremely dehydrated. Jesus' body depends on water for in his system for life and sustenance, just like your body and my body does. Jesus is thirsting because he's gone through the long ordeal that began in the garden the previous night with excessive perspiration, sweats pouring out and dropping to the ground like great gobules of blood. And then after that, all the beating and the scourging he's endured and then being mounted high on on a cross, fastened by the nails with his body weight constantly pulling his body down and his shoulder blade constantly drooping so that he had to constantly pull himself up to open the airway, to ease the difficult breathing and gasping air for air for hours. And Jesus, at the end of this ordeal, is crying out, I thirst. It truly reveals to us Jesus is truly a man. The eternal Son of God did not merely appear as man, but he became man and born of woman. True humanity inseparably joined to his full deity in the mystery of all the mysteries that we call the incarnation, so that the Lord Jesus was and continues to be fully God and fully man, the Godhead and the manhood, the two whole perfect distinct natures joined in one person without any compromise to either nature. And Jesus in his humanity, has gone through this grueling, harrowing experience of bodily trauma without any drink of water. And he's taken a physical toll, and he thirsts. Jesus is not a superman. 
you need to think that Jesus was never, for not one second, infused with some divine attributes in his human life that set him apart from all others he came to save. He's not a superman. He shares our nature fully, yet without sin. Jesus knows our frame, that we are dust, because prior to his resurrection, he himself had a frame of dust. He shares our nature because he is our representative. He is our perfect mediator. He is your elder brother. And he subjected himself to all the weaknesses and infirmities of humanity in this fallen world that we face. And you ask the question, why would the eternal Son of God, who everlastingly dwelled in the blessedness of the glory with a, with a Father, ever subject himself to that kind of suffering? And the gospel has one answer. It is out of his love for sinners. It was for us and for our salvation to redeem sinners that Jesus became man. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17 says, Jesus had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God in order to make propitiation for the sins of his people. So in this cry of thirst, you have a true assurance, brothers and sisters, do we not? You have a high priest, one who is just like you, who is not unable to either understand or sympathize with all your weaknesses because Jesus in every respect has been subjected to temptations and weaknesses that you will face in your Christian living. So he is able to help you. He is able to draw near to you. He understands all your experiences. Jesus weeps as a man. Jesus shed tears. He knows and understands the every imaginable, sorrowful, grieving experience you may face. Even as you walk through the veil of tears, Jesus can draw near to you. And Jesus also grew tired and weary in his body. He knows all your stru- uh, physical struggles. He knows young moms in this congregation. He knows something of what it is to try to live the Christian life perpetually exhausted with endless demands upon you. And Jesus understands the bodily fatigue. He knows every physical temptation that comes your way, young man. But there is not one human experience not one human situation or frustration that Jesus has not been acquainted with or faced personally as a man. And that's what this cry reveals to you. It expresses Jesus' true humanity. Because he's a man, he is able to sympathize with you, help you. Jesus himself, himself, had needs as a man just like you did. That's a staggering thought to think. The eternal son of man had needs. He needed a drink. He's able to help you in your needs because Jesus, the son of God, in his human life, 
had needs and depended on things. The mighty transcendent God of Isaiah 40, the one who has measured the waters in the palm of his hands, the God of Psalm 135, the one who commands the vapors and clouds to rise and then sends refreshing streams of rain to come down on earth and causes rivers and streams to flow, the one who created the springs of water, the one who created the sea and all that is in it, the God who created all these things is thirsting. And he's doing that, believers, for you. And so he knows the reality of all the pains that some of you may be walking through at this very moment. Never a dark and painful path that you may be led into by God's providence, that Jesus is not unable to come alongside of you, and more than that, where you do not see the footprints of your Savior already implanted there before you walk that path. So that's the first thing we see Jesus thirst expressing his humanity. And secondly, I want you to see how Jesus' cry of thirst provides us with a preview of hell. Jesus' thirst provides us something of the picture of what hell will be like. Something of the nature of eternal punishment that awaits sinners who are apart from Jesus Christ. Jesus' thirst has a much deeper cause. Much deeper cause than just merely human and physical. It's not just due to mere physical dehydration. What's causing Jesus' thirst ultimately is the content of the cup that has been handed to him by the Father. The cup of wrath. The cup at the prospect of which Jesus had to shudder and shrink back and struggle mightily in the garden. And now on the cross, he's drinking fully from that cup in obedience to the Father's will. And in his humanity, both his body and soul, is being fully engulfed in the flames of the judgment fire of a holy and righteous God as he bore away our sins. We read in the Old Testament book, Nahum chapter 1, verse 6, who can stand before his indignation Who can endure the heat of his wrath? His wrath is being poured out like a fire. What's written in that verse? Jesus is undergoing on the cross. As he is in anguish and agony of hell, as he faces the fire of judgment and wrath, it's leaving his entire humanity thirsty. Jesus is facing the awful reality that he himself has described in the parable told in Luke chapter 16 of the rich man and Lazarus. Uh, Do you remember that parable about two men who died? Lazarus died in salvation. The rich man sent to damnation in hell. Do you remember how the rich man, eternally trapped in the fires of hell, had to place like a a panic call, 911 call to Abraham and pleaded with Abraham, please send someone, Lazarus, to dip the end of his finger in water in order to cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. 
And Abram's answer is, uh, that's an impossibility. A great chasm has been fixed so that there's no crossing over between the two worlds. The same, the same chasm has been eternally fixed between those who are in Christ and those who are outside of Christ. And by the way, let's not imagine that the reality of what Jesus speaks is any less serious than the parable that he told. Because he himself is demonstrating on the cross the sheer horror of the punishment of hell. So Jesus' thirst is giving us a preview of what eternal damnation will be like for those who are found without a refuge, without a covering. When you turn to the book of Revelation, you get another description of that place called hell as the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. This is a place of endless torment and eternal suffering where people will face eternal ruination of both body and soul, which the scripture called the second death, which is the wages of sin. And here on the cross, that wages are being dispensed upon the man who became sin, the Lord Jesus. The wages of sin, which will be dispensed to sinners according to their works, Jesus is receiving in full as he stood in their place. And so Jesus is thirsty because he's enduring the judgment of hell as the sin bearer. He is, if you will, taking that verse from Zechariah chapter 9 that speaks about the shedding of the blood of the covenant. He is gone down into that waterless pit in order to rescue and redeem the prisoners who are bound under the sentence of condemnation. Jesus is thirsting because he's plunged himself into that waterless pit to bring the prisoners out through the shedding of his blood. Sin dehydrates people. Sin will always lead you to thirst because sin not only alienates you from God who is the fountain of living waters, but more somberly, sin incurs the judgment of the Holy One, the Holy God who is a consuming fire and will eternally lead sinners into that waterless pit, into the lake of fire, apart from a savior. That puts a new meaning, doesn't it? Whenever you sing Psalm 40, he drew me out of the pit and put a new song in my mouth, song of salvation, to praise our Savior. And that's what Jesus is enduring. And in his grace and mercy, he has come to deliver sinners from that wrath to come by taking that wrath upon himself. And soon as we come to the Lord's Supper, we ought to do so in remembrance of him who endured hell for us. And so flee to Jesus. Just like the days of Noah, people had to hide in the ark. He is the only safe refuge from the coming wrath to come upon sinners. Well, here's the third thing that I want you to see. Jesus' thirst is not only an expression of true humanity, it not only gives us a preview of hell, but it also, thirdly, proclaims the message of a glorious exchange. 
Jesus' thirst proclaims the truth of substitution. He is suffering and thirsting in the place of sinners. Now notice in our text what happens in verse 29. I'll give you a few seconds to look down and locate that verse once again. Upon hearing Jesus' cry, we read that the Roman soldiers put a sponge on a hyssop branch and soaked that sponge in a jar full of sour wine and put it up to Jesus' mouth as a kind of cruel mockery and joke. But interestingly, Jesus took that sour wine. Now, very strange and peculiar because just earlier in the crucifixion, Mark chapter 15, verse 23 tells us that when the soldiers offered wine mixed with myrrh, earlier, Jesus refused to take that bitter concoction. It had to be a full conscious suffering all the way to death. Jesus refused to take anything that would dull his senses and alleviate his pain. He had to suffer in an unmitigated fashion. So why is Jesus now, right before his death, taking this sour wine right before he breathed his last? If you are thirsty, you drink Gatorade, not vinegar. This will make the thirst even worse. Sour wine will make it burn in your throat when you are dehydrated. So why is Jesus receiving this wine of bitterness and rottenness brought to him on a hyssop branch? The hyssop branch, do you remember, was used in the sprinkling of blood in the Old Testament sacrificial system instituted at the Passover in Exodus chapter 12. And remember Psalm 51 when David cried out to the Lord after his sin, purge me with hyssops and I shall be clean. Wash me, Savior, and I shall be white as snow. This instrument of cleansing is now being put before Jesus, who is the sinless one, containing not sacrificial blood to sprinkle him with, but rather soaked with sour wine. I want you to see an amazing exchange that's taking place here. Do you remember in your regular Bible reading this well-known proverb that people used to say quite nonchalantly and ignorantly in the land of Israel? It's mentioned in Ezekiel chapter 18 and Jeremiah chapter 31. And you can look it up, Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 29. Right before the promise of the new covenant is given, the proverb said, The fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. People used to say, children will pay for the father's sins. But no, no, says the Lord. The issue is more serious. Everyone shall die for his own iniquity. Each man who eats sour grapes, his teeth shall be set on edge. The soul that sinneth dies. That was the response back to the ignorant people of God from the word of the Lord. And do you see what is happening here? In order to usher in the promise of the new covenant, the forgiveness of your sins, Jesus is being handed the sour grapes to drink 
that is setting his teeth on, on the edge on the cross. What a glorious picture of exchange. Even in his dying moment, in order to provide cleansing with his own blood, Jesus is taking the sour wine that has been fermented with your sin in order that he may grant you the new wine of new covenant blessings. He's taking all the rottenness brought to him on a hyssop branch, bearing the judgment away so that he may sprinkle you clean with his own blood, with a hyssop branch of the gospel. He took the sour grapes of our sins and received death that we deserved so that we may be brought to the true vine and receive life and begin to bear fruit in union with him. Whenever we come to the table, you lift up the cup of salvation, realizing that he drank from the cup of sour grapes, the cup of wrath, so that all that is left for you to now enjoy is the new wine of new covenant blessings. So he's thirsting in our place, brothers and sisters, as Jesus bore our sins and judgment upon our sins in our place. Jesus is completing the very work that the gospel is proclaimed. In my place condemned he stood and sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah. What a savior. And it's the very truth that the table will proclaim to you. There is no condemnation for you who are in Christ Jesus. It's a cup of blessing. This is a table of communion. There's no condemnation for you who are in Christ Jesus. And fourthly and finally, Jesus' thirst testifies also to the reality of completion. It is finished. Jesus said, I thirst. Look down again in our passage, verse 28. John tells us for two specific reasons. Knowing that it is finished, Purposefully, Jesus cried out, I thirst, also in order to fulfill scriptures. But what is finished? What is it that was finished? The Bible says, his obedience is now complete. His suffering is over and done away with. The sacrifice has been made. The work that the Father gave him to do was done. The sins of his people are expiated. The wrath of God has been satisfied. Your redemption has been accomplished. It comprehensively has been finished. And that's the reason why Jesus cried out, I thirst, to demonstrate that everything he has done, he has done in accordance with the scriptures to fulfill all that is written about himself as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, this is a truth of first importance that Jesus suffered and died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. And so it is finished, and we cry out with the psalmist at the end of Psalm 22, now go proclaim his righteousness to the ends of the earth, to the coming generations, that the Lord has done it. It is finished, and we believe. There's nothing more for you to do you come to him, 
You rest in his, in his finished work. You boast in his glory. And you come drinking from the fountain of life that has been opened for you in Jesus Christ. Come. That's the word of invitation from the banquet of the kingdom. Everything has been made ready. Come and drink and eat from the bread of life who gives you the water of life. And as this table will proclaim to you, there's nothing you need to bring. There's nothing you need to bring to this table except your great need of him. This is what Jesus' thirst proclaims. It expresses true humanity as your sympathetic high priest who died for you. It shows us how he's rescued us from the everlasting fires of hell by hanging in that tree on your behalf. It proclaims that glorious exchange whereby he took the sour grapes of sin away from you in order to bring into your hand the cup of blessing. And he proclaims once for all finished work of redemption, finished forever. Two points of application to you by way of exhortation then as we finish and before we come to the table. Two points of applications for you to take with you even as you come to the table. And the first is simply an invitation to you to come. Jesus' cry, I thirst, is an invitation to all the thirsty sinners to come and find the water of life without price. Because Jesus thirsted, you need not thirst anymore. In Jesus Christ, believers no longer face the same kind of thirst. There's no more thirst of condemnation for you. The only thirst that you begin to feel is the thirst that the psalmist gives expression to. It's the thirst of grace, the spiritual hunger and thirst for him. And whenever you come to him, he promises that he will satisfy you to the fullest without failure. Promises abound in the scriptures. He is the rock smitten in the wilderness out of which waters flowed so the people who are thirsty could drink from. And he says to you in Isaiah chapter 51, come to me, everyone who thirsts. Come to the waters. He who has no money, come and drink from me. Jesus says in John's gospel, come unto me. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Whoever believes in me, as scriptures has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And the water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. These promises abound in the scriptures and they are bidding you to come to him. Well, how do you come to him? It's by faith alone, by believing in the Lord Jesus. Consider the length Jesus went to in order to fulfill the scriptures. If Jesus thirsted so that the scriptures can be fulfilled, then surely he will promise all he will fulfill all the promises given in the scriptures also of satisfaction granted to all the thirsty souls who come to him. And so come. That's the first application you have in response to Jesus' cry. He's full of grace and love. He bids all who are needy and thirsty and weary to come to him and with joy draw deeply from the wells of salvation. And as you begin to drink from this water, as you come to the Lord Jesus, then your soul begins to live. If sin dehydrates your soul, if sin puts you into the waterless pit, 
then grace hydrates your soul. To use the image of scriptures as you come to Jesus, the book of Isaiah particularly promises that there will be opened up for you spiritual irrigation and spiritual vegetation. Waters flowing, things growing. He will make your life like a well-watered garden. When the poor needy seek water and there's no long and there, there's none and the, their tongue is parched with thirst, God promises that I will open rivers, I will cause things to grow so that you may understand and consider and know and see that the hand of the Lord has done this, that the Holy One of Israel has created it. So Jesus who thirsted now promises to water your soul. Come to him and drink freely to your satisfaction. Then secondly, as we finish, as we come to the table in this cry, there's not only an invitation for you to come, but there's also an appeal for you to service. There's an appeal given to you to service. What would you have offered Jesus if you stood near the cross as he thirsted? When all the worldly people offered him a sponge soaked with cheap sour vinegar, what would you have offered the Lord Jesus? Well, as you live the Christian life, Jesus says, you do see him thirsty. The parable told in Matthew chapter 25, concerning the last day when the king will bring all the sheep to his right hand to inherit the kingdom prepared for them. And they all ask in amazement, Lord, when did we see you thirsty and gave you drink? Do you remember the response from Jesus? Lord, God said, truly I say to you, as you did it to the least of one of these of my brothers, you have done it to me. Well, believers, brothers and sisters, the gospel unfolds before you the love of God for you in Jesus Christ, who thirsted, suffered, and died for you. How do you love your Savior in response? There are only two ways that the Bible mentions. You keep his commandments, and you show your love for him by serving his people. You keep his commandments, and you show love for the brethren. As you come to the table, may the love of God be poured into your heart. And as you come together as the body, may the love for brothers and sisters increase. And that can only increase to the extent that you understand this cry, let out of the mouth of Jesus for your sake. As the love of the Lord Jesus dawns upon you, may you keep on serving God's people even to the laying down of your life. Oh, may God bless this word and truly satisfy our souls as we come to commune with him at the table. Let's pray together. Gracious Heavenly Father, our great God and Father, we thank you and praise you. But truly there are depths there that we cannot plumb and yet, Lord, we thank you for the spirit who gives us understanding. And thank you that we have been brought into the Lord Jesus Christ. Pray that we would abide in him and find all the answers and satisfactions 
in the one who loved us and gave himself up for us. So build up this body, we pray. Nurture us, we ask. We pray these things all in Christ's name. Amen.